0: Welcome to another lecture in the MSK Cornerstone course. This is a continuation of our sports medicine series. This is the final lecture in which we will be discussing knee ligamentous injury. In this lecture, we will go over the medial collateral ligament, the posterolateral corner, and the lateral collateral ligament. This is a longer lecture, but it needs to be in order to cover all of the testable material. Let's get started by talking about injury and treatment of the medial collateral ligament. This is a topic near and dear to my heart as I actually sprained my MCL at a wrestling match at a co-resident's wedding. So yes, if you're an orthopedic resident and you get married, it's quite common to drink many libations with your friends and challenge each other to feats of strength, which eventually may involve a wrestling match, possibly in a tuxedo. We're going to to briefly talk about topics involving the MCL structure and function, a typical history and presentation of an injury, followed by treatments and outcomes. So briefly, what is the medial collateral ligament and what is its function? Let's address the structure of the medial collateral ligament as it applies to its function. The medial side of the knee is stabilized by both static and dynamic stabilizers. The medial collateral ligament is composed of both the superficial and deep component, which are separated by a bursa. The superficial component is the primary restraint to valgus stress and can be tested in isolation at 30 degrees of knee flexion. It originates slightly proximal and posterior to the medial femoral epicondyle by about 3 to 4 millimeters respectively and has a broad insertion running just distal to the articular surface and continuing about 6 centimeters down the tibia inserting into the periosteum just deep to the PES tendons. Remember that during a hamstring harvest for an ACL reconstruction, you need to go through the sartorius, layer 1, to harvest the gracilis and semitendinosus, while avoiding the saphenis, which is between layers 1 and 2, and need to avoid going too deep and getting into the superficial MCL, which is in layer 2. This anatomic association also comes into the play with the development of a stener type lesion following a grade 3 injury. When this occurs, the distal insertion of the superficial MCL can tear and flip proximally over the PES tendons. The deep MCL is essentially a capsular thickening and is intimately associated with the medial meniscus via the coronary ligaments. Posteriorly, the fibers of the deep MCL blend with the posterior oblique ligament. Here's a quick testable correlate. What does the posterior oblique ligament do? It resists internal rotation of the tibia in full extension. While we're on the subject, what muscle internally rotates the tibia, on initiation of flexion to unlock the tibia from its externally rotated position in full extension, thereby reversing the screw-home mechanism, the popliteus. Alright, so how do these injuries present and how can we manage them? Well, first of all, MCL injuries are incredibly common. In fact, it is the most commonly injured ligament in the knee. As you can imagine, the injury typically occurs secondary to a severe valgus load or external rotation force to the lower extremity. Patients may complain of a pop or tearing sensation that is localized to the medial aspect of the knee. On physical exam, patients may have some medial-sided bruising, possibly a knee effusion, and some tenderness over the medial joint line. About 5% of the time, MCL injuries are associated with a medial meniscus tear. Range of motion and assessing laxity to valgus stress at 0 and 30 degrees of flexion are vital for determining the extent of injury. MCL injury classification is based upon the degree of medial gapping with valgus stress at 30 degrees of flexion. A grade 1 injury is 1 to 4 millimeters of gapping. Grade 2 is between 5 and 9 millimeters, and grade 3 injuries have greater than 10 millimeters of gapping. This can obviously be difficult to assess accurately clinically, so for everyday applications, I would consider a grade 1 sprain, those with pain but symmetric or near symmetric clinical exam. A grade 2 injury would have increased laxity but an endpoint, and those with grade 3 injuries, in other words, those with a complete disruption of the MCL, would have gross laxity with no endpoint. Some patients may also sustain a saphenous nerve neuropraxia if the injury is severe enough, so it is important to assess sensory function along the medial lower leg. Finally, it is important to complete a full physical exam of the knee to assess for other possible ligamentous injuries, especially in high-grade MCL injuries. Testing for valgus stress and full extension can also give you information about another possible ligamentous injury. What other ligament would be torn if the knee was lax at both 0 and 30 degrees and also showed a positive posterior sag sign, the PCL? What is the most commonly associated ligamentous injury with MCL tears and would be diagnosed with a positive Lachman and pivot shift test? Tom Brady knows the answer to this question, and that's the ACL. The ACL is frequently injured along with the MCL, especially in grade 3 MCL injuries. Now, if you have an ACL and MCL, do they both have to be fixed? Usually not. Most surgeons will let the MCL heal, get good motion and quad function, and then reconstruct the ACL. Alright, so let's discuss some of the imaging studies that you would order. Obviously, we will start with plain radiographs because we are orthopedic surgeons and we love looking at pictures of bones. Most times, these are going to look completely normal. On some films, even in completely asymptomatic patients, you may notice some calcifications at the femoral insertion of the MCL. This indicates a chronic MCL injury and is known as a Pellegrini-Steati sign. An MRI can help to further delineate the extent of the injury and identify any other possible associated injuries. If the MCL is fully torn off the bone, it most commonly gets avulsed off the proximal insertion at the femoral condyle, which is actually great news. Proximal injuries have a better healing rate than distal avulsions, and not only do they heal more frequently, but when they heal, they also heal with less residual laxity than the distal injuries. Distal grade 3 injuries are also susceptible to the so-called stener lesion, where the MCL tears off the proximal tibia, flips over the PES tendons, and cannot heal back to its anatomic position without surgical intervention. So remember, proximal tears are better. In other words, in the MCL, superior tears are superior. So now that we've diagnosed our MCL tear, what are we going to do about it? Well, grade 1 injuries get conservative therapy, Possibly some therapy for lower extremity range of motion, strengthening, and return to sport as they become asymptomatic. Grade 2 and 3 injuries can also be successfully treated with conservative therapy, rest, anti inflammatories, and icing. However, they may also benefit from a hinged knee brace. When I tore my MCL, I can tell you that anything that caused valgus stress across the knee was quite painful. For example, It was my right knee, so even laying on my right side with the weight of gravity on my foot causing valgus stress was enough to cause pain. My point is these higher grade injuries will likely benefit from some bracing to prevent valgus stress. Alright, now what patients should we be considering surgery? Well, operative intervention is appropriate for grade 3 injuries with the stener lesion injury pattern as they cannot possibly heal back into place. Also, MCL injuries associated with multiligamentous knee injuries should undergo operative fixation as the restored MCL function will also help to protect the other newly reconstructed ligaments from undue stress. Other indications for operative intervention include grade 3 injuries that continue to have significant instability despite a trial of conservative therapy. For this, visualize a distal avulsion pattern that leads to continual medial-sided gapping even after it's healed. The MCL is interesting in that it has shown good results with both repair and reconstruction. Acute avulsion injuries can be fixed back to their insertion with anchors. In chronic tears or those with attenuated tissue, an allograft can be used to reconstruct the ligament. During any operative intervention, care should be taken to avoid any injury to the saphenous nerve as it crosses the surgical field. One last testable point in terms of injury prevention. The only people that seem to benefit from bracing for prevention of MCL injuries are football players, particularly interior linemen. This comes out of a study from West Point and has been tested in the past. All right, so that goes over most of the testable concepts for MCL injury and reconstruction. Let's turn our attention now to discussing posterolateral corner injuries and lateral collateral ligament injuries. So let's begin with the structure and function of the posterolateral corner. To truly understand the posterolateral corner, it is important to know the anatomy and the function of the structures that make up the parts of its whole. In order to do this, we will take a detailed approach to the lateral side of the knee. The initial two structures encountered on dissection of the lateral corner of the knee are the iliotibial band and biceps. The iliotibial band lies anterior to the biceps. It inserts on the tibia at Gertie's tubercle. The bicep lies posterior to the IT band and inserts onto the fibular head. In fact, it is the most posterior structure on the fibular head. These two structures make up the first layer of the lateral knee joint. They are also both considered dynamic stabilizers of the posterolateral corner. To remember some of the IT band anatomy, just think about what it's famous for, IT band syndrome. IT band syndrome comes from a tight IT band that is constantly moving across the lateral femoral epicondyle until it inflames the underlying bursa. It is moving anterior and posterior across the epicondyle. Each time it changes from anterior to posterior, it also changes from an extensor to a flexor of the knee. Can you think of a clinical test that exemplifies this change? The pivot shift test. And what nerve innervates the IT band? In other words, the tensor fascia Think up to the Smith-Pete approach to the hip. IT innervation is from the superior gluteal nerve. The Smith-Peterson approach is between the tensor fasciae latae and gluteus medius and sartorius and rectus femoris. Tensor fasciae latae and gluteus medius are innervated by the superior gluteal nerve and the sartorius and rectus femoris, the femoral nerve. All right, back down to the knee. So posterior to the IT band, still in layer one, is the biceps femoris. The biceps runs to the fibular head and is the most posterior structure to insert on the fibula. Behind and underneath the biceps lies the common perineal nerve. Here's another testable fact. What is the only muscle in the thigh innervated by the perineal division of the sciatic nerve? The short head of the biceps. And how can you remember that versus the long head? The short head is more distal. The nerve branches distally. At least that's how I remember it. So far then in layer 1, we've got our superior gluteal nerve innervated, IT band, anteriorly inserting on Gertie's and our sciatic nerve innervated biceps posteriorly inserting on the fibular head. This makes it an ideal surgical plane for the lateral approach to the knee. Behind and underneath the biceps is the common perineal nerve which in terms of layers of the knee we consider it to run between layers one and two. Layer two of the knee consists of the patellar retinaculum and the patellofemoral ligament. For the purposes of our talk, just know that they are in layer two, but neither of these structures are considered to be part of the posterolateral corner complex. Finally, we get to layer three. So far, we've talked about two of our dynamic stabilizers of the posterolateral corner, the biceps and IT band, and one important at-risk structure during injury and reconstruction, the common perineal nerve. Probably the three most important structures, in terms of the posterolateral corner, are the lateral collateral ligament, the popliteus and its tendon, and the popliteofibular ligament. During reconstruction procedures, these are the three ligaments we try to recreate. In terms of these three structures, I want you to think of an upside down figure four. If you're visualizing this, to the left is anterior, to the right is posterior, and imagine a figure four with the point facing down. The vertical line of your upside down four is the lateral collateral ligament. It is a small cord-like structure that runs from the lateral femoral epicondyle down to the fibular head. A testable fact here is that it is the most anterior structure inserting on the fibular head. You can remember this by the fact that the LCL is also sometimes called the FCL or fibular collateral ligament or, for our purposes, the first collateral ligament, FCL. Either way, just try to remember that it inserts the most anterior on the fibula. The LCL also lies behind the center of rotation of the knee, so it is tight in extension and lacks in flexion. You can test it in isolation at 30 degrees of flexion with varus stress. So continuing our figure 4 analogy, the next line takes us from the fibula and travels posterior and superior, or, if you're visualizing it, up and to the right. This is the popliteofibular ligament. This ligament runs from the fibula to the myotendinous junction of the popliteus muscle. Testable facts about the PF ligament are number one. It comes off the fibula just posterior to the lateral collateral ligament and just anterior to the biceps. So the order of insertion of the structures on the fibular head goes the LCL, the popliteofibular ligament, and the biceps. The upside down figure four can help you to remember the order of the first two. Finally, we've got our last line in the figure four, which is the popliteus tendon. The popliteus tendon runs from the muscle belly on the back of the tibia, runs intra through the popliteal hiatus behind the lateral meniscus, and inserts onto the lateral femoral condyle on the popliteus sulcus. Obviously, because it is running intra it must be running deep to the LCL. So in terms of our figure four, you can draw it running underneath the initial vertical line. Question writers like to focus on the relationship between the origin of the LCL and the insertion of the popliteus, or the top of our vertical line and the end of the horizontal line. I like the mnemonic, pop is mad, meaning popliteus is medial, anterior, and distal to the origin of the LCL. Exactly how far apart are these two structures? 18.5 millimeters to be exact. All right, so far we've discussed five components of the posterolateral corner the biceps, the IT band, the LCL, the popliteofibular ligament, and the popliteus. There are a few more players that you should recognize as included, but I have never seen a question that refers directly to them. The arcuate ligament, the fibulofibular ligament, and the lateral capsule are also considered static stabilizers of the PLC. The first two are basically posterolateral capsular thickenings. The arcuate ligament is a Y-shaped ligament running from the lateral femoral condyle inserting onto the fibular head deep to the LCL, poplidiofibular ligament, and the biceps. It is the most medial structure inserting on the fibular head. The fibular ligament is variably present and runs from the fibula to the fibula if it is present. I've never seen them directly tested aside from recognizing these ligaments as lateral structures so I'm not going to spend a lot of time on them. The arcuate sometimes pops up in questions about the arcuate sign found on plain films and will be discussed later. Finally, in addition to the bicep and IT band, the lateral head of the gastroc is also considered a dynamic stabilizer of the posterolateral corner. Alright, so that is the structure of the posterolateral corner. So now, what does it do? Why is it important clinically and how do we treat it when it gets blown apart? All right, remember this phrase. The posterolateral corner is the primary stabilizer against external rotation of the tibia and also helps to prevent varus and posterior translation. Again, the posterolateral corner is the primary stabilizer against external rotation of the tibia and also helps to prevent varus and posterior translation. This will be easy to remember as we talk about the physical exam and the reconstruction considerations. So how does the posterolateral corner get injured? Well, consider its position within the posterolateral aspect of the knee, and it's easy to assume the possible mechanisms of injury. It can be damaged with a direct blow to the anterior medial or medial portion of the knee, creating a hyperextension or varus force on the knee. It can also be damaged in similar fashion in a non-contact hyperextension injury. Lastly and most concerning is that the posterolateral corner is frequently damaged following knee dislocations whose management we'll discuss in a later lecture. It's pretty rare to see an isolated posterolateral corner injury and you should have a high index of suspicion for concomitant injuries. It's frequently damaged with a cruciate ligament. More often this is the posterior cruciate ligament than the anterior cruciate ligament. The dial test can help to diagnose that and we will go over it shortly. Frequently probably more so in the past before it was recognized as an injury pattern, these injuries were missed and would be a common cause of late ACL reconstruction failure. Also, if you remember our at-risk structure, the common perineal nerve is also commonly damaged with posterolateral corner injuries, particularly during knee dislocations. If a knee dislocation is suspected, a thorough neurovascular exam, including ankle brachial indexes, must be performed and well-documented. So now we have our patient that we suspect may have a ligamentous knee injury. What are some possible physical exam findings to look for to confirm the diagnosis well if a patient with a history of knee injury walks into your office with a noticeable varus thrust i would start to get suspicious the first specific test we'll talk about is the ever popular and frequently tested dial test so we've mentioned that the posterior lateral corner is the primary stabilizer against external rotation of the tibia so if it's blown apart what will happen increased external rotation and that's exactly what the dial test assesses. The patient can be prone or supine with a knee flexed to 30 degrees. Both tibias are then externally rotated. This maneuver is repeated at 90 degrees. Greater than 10 degrees of asymmetry are considered a positive test. If you have a positive test at 30 degrees, then you should be suspicious because at least the posterolateral corner is out. If you remember back to the posterior cruciate ligament lecture, you will remember that it contributes to external rotation stability with the knee at 90 degrees. So if the exam is negative at 90, then chances are the PCL is still intact. However, if the exam is positive at 30 degrees and 90 degrees, then you likely have both a posterior lateral corner and a posterior cruciate injury. It's important to understand this concept because you will absolutely get tested about it. The next test is a simple varus stress test at zero and 30 degrees. This is testing the lateral collateral ligament. If you have laxity at 30 degrees, then you should be suspicious of a lateral collateral ligament injury. If you have laxity at 30 degrees and in full extension, then you should be concerned for both an LCL injury and possibly a cruciate ligament injury as well. Lateral opening the varus stress is graded in a similar fashion as medial injuries with grades one through three, depending on the amount of opening. Grade one has one to five millimeters of opening, Grade two, six to 10 millimeters, and grade three is greater than 10 millimeters of opening. The external rotation recurvatum test and the posterolateral drawer test really focus to test whether or not the knee has increased external rotation and posterior translation. Again, what is the function of posterior posterolateral corner? To provide restraint against external rotation, varus, and posterior translation. The external rotation recurvatum test is performed by holding the patient's toes up in the air while they lay in the supine position. If their muscles are totally relaxed, the knee may fall into an externally rotated and recurvatum position. The posterior lateral drawer test is also virtually just like it sounds. You flex the knee to 90 degrees like you would do with an anterior posterior drawer test and externally rotate the tibia. You then apply an additional posterior and external rotation force to see if the lateral tibial plateau will sublux relative to the lateral femoral condyle. Finally, the reverse pivot shift test has also popped up in a few questions. It makes sense to think about the pathology going on and how it's relating to the similar pivot shift exam for an ACL injury. The principles behind the exam, in essence, are the same. The initial motion subluxes the tibia relative to the femur. And then, during knee motion, it reduces as the IT band changes its role, either from an extensor or from a flexor. In the regular pivot shift test for an ACL injury, a valgus and internal rotation force is applied to the fully extended knee, which will anterolaterally sublux the tibia on the femur. While holding this force, the knee is then flexed past 30 degrees. So again, with the initial stages of knee flexion, the tibia is anterolaterally subluxed on the distal femur. With further flexion of the knee past 30 degrees, the IT band goes from an extensor to a flexor, and the tibia anterolateral subluxation reduces or shifts back into place. So now let's think about this in context of the reverse pivot shift exam. In the reverse pivot shift exam, the opposite of this is true. The knee starts from a flexed position at 90 degrees and an external rotation in valgus force is applied. The only similarity between the two exams is the valgus force, so don't confuse that. Anyway, the external rotation in valgus force will sublux the tibia posterolaterally. The knee is then extended. As the IT band crosses the threshold from a flexor to an extensor, again at approximately the 30 degree flexion mark, it will pull the tibia into a reduced position. Alright, so that's enough about the reverse pivot shift exam. Finally, be sure to finish off your physical exam with a thorough neuromuscular exam as mentioned earlier. Check pulses, ensure symmetry with the contralateral extremity, and if there is any concern about a knee dislocation, get an ankle brachial index. Controversy exists whether angiograms are required during knee dislocation, but an ABI greater than 0.9 generally rules out any vascular injury. Document the status of the peroneal nerve, focusing on ankle dorsiflexion and sensation over the dorsum of the foot. As always, the next step in our diagnostic workup are the imaging studies. First, we'll start off with plain radiographs. As usual, with ligamentous injuries, it is not unusual for these to be normal. Sometimes, you will be able to see an avulsion fracture from the fibular head. Instead of just calling it that, hey, look, an avulsion fracture from the fibular head, they've decided to name it, because that's what we like to do, name things. So an avulsion fracture of a fibular head is called an arcuate sign. The avulsed fragment may have the LCL, biceps, and arcuate ligament attached. What's another common lateral-sided avulsion found on plain films that is pathognomonic for a ligamentous injury? The Sagun sign an avulsion of the lateral tibial plateau associated with an ACL tear. So now you know two avulsion signs, the sagun sign and the arcuate sign. Radiographs are also important in preoperative planning to look for any malalignment. A chronic PLC injury can lead to varus over time as the compromised lateral ligaments lead to collapsing of the joint space medially. Failure to correct the varus malalignment will put any ligamentous reconstruction at risk for failure. Primary varus malalignment is exactly that. You're born with it. It's varus malalignment that was there prior to the injury. Secondary varus malalignment is caused by a disruption of the LCL leading to increased lateral opening and medial collapse. Triple varus alignment is caused by disruption of the entire posterolateral complex and leads to the characteristic varus recurvatum deformity. The varus alignment needs to be corrected at the time of surgery with a medial opening high tibial osteotomy. Keep in mind that residual varus deformity at the time of reconstruction has been associated with higher rates of failure. Without a doubt, an MRI is indicated to fully comprehend the extent of the damage and for preoperative planning. The MRI will show all of the disrupted ligamentous structures, any associated cruciate or meniscal damage, and may help to assess for the continuity of the perineal nerve. MRI can also show bone bruising on the medial tibial plateau and medial femoral condyle. Where do you see the characteristic bone bruising pattern after an ACL injury? The lateral femoral condyle and the lateral aspect of the posterior tibia. And what tests do we associate with these ACL tears? The pivot shift. And what does that test? lateral rotatory instability. Again, so where do we see the bone bruising pattern on posterior lateral corner injuries? The medial femoral condyle and medial tibial plateau. And what test is associated with posterolateral corner injuries? The reverse pivot shift. And what does that test? Posterolateral instability. Okay, so now we have our diagnosis. It's a posterolateral corner injury. We know what it is, what it does, how it got injured, and did a great physical and confirmed our diagnosis on imaging studies. Now, how are we going to treat it? In terms of conservative management for posterolateral corner injuries, there is generally a limited role. In isolated, low-grade sprains with the structures remaining in continuity, the patient can be managed with immobilization in extension for two weeks, followed by physical therapy for quad strengthening. Most cases, however, will require operative reconstruction. In some isolated injuries with either soft tissue or bony avulsions, the avulsed structure may be able to be repaired back into place with suture anchors or screw fixation in the case of a bony fragment. In rare cases of an isolated lateral collateral ligament injury, direct suture repair of the ligament may be enough for a successful outcome. If, however, the tissue is not amenable to repair, then reconstruction is warranted. The goal of a reconstruction is to recreate the lateral collateral ligament and popliteofibular ligament. This is accomplished with various constructs of bone tunnels and interference screws, anchoring the grafts of the fibula and the lateral femoral condyle. There are several reconstruction techniques utilized most which utilize allograph. The specifics of the particular reconstruction techniques are above the level of both the in training exam and the board examinations. Most surgeons prefer to operate on these injuries acutely as excessive scarring can complicate the reconstruction significantly. If there is a peroneal nerve injury, most surgeons prefer to perform a neurolysis to assess the extent of damage, especially in a knee dislocation. If the patient has sustained a concomitant cruciate ligament injury, it is reasonable to reconstruct the posterolateral corner at the same procedure or as a first stage in a two-stage procedure. As mentioned earlier, if the posterior lateral corner injury is chronic and the patient has developed a varus deformity, a medial opening wedge high tibial osteotomy must be performed at the same time to unload some of the stress from the reconstructed lateral ligaments. Believe it or not, postoperatively, patients may be placed in a long leg cast for up to four weeks, as this has been shown to control external rotation better than a brace, Passive range of motion is initiated at four weeks to avoid arthrofibrosis. However, most surgeons will immobilize their patients in a hinged knee brace locked in extension and then begin passive range of motion at the four week time point. Finally, just a word on rehabilitation and some help in rationalizing rehab questions. Following any reconstructive procedure, no matter the ligament, you wanna limit the stress on the graft during the acute post-operative period. That being said, during normal knee motion, The quadriceps pulls the tibia anteriorly and the hamstrings posteriorly. So, for ACL reconstructions, for example, you want to avoid active knee extension in the acute post-op period as it places an abundance of anterior stress across the graft, while the hamstring curls are generally okay because they pull posteriorly. Using that logic, it makes sense that after a posterior lateral corner reconstruction, hamstring exercises are avoided, while active extension exercises are generally allowed. All right, so that concludes our talk on posterolateral corner and medial collateral ligament injuries. That's also the final lecture in our knee ligamentous injury section. There's a lot to take in during this lecture, but it is a highly testable subject. In the next section, we will be discussing knee overuse injuries and pathology of the patellofemoral joint. Thanks for listening.